Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Grant Skeldon on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Welcome, Exponential, to today's episode of Candid Conversations. I'm Peyton Jones. I'm the content director here at Exponential, and I'm joined by my co-host, Grant Skeldon, hip with the young people, as we said before this call started. Grant, good to see you, man. Hey, what's up, y'all? And uh, Grant's moving to Nashville, which is the coolest city in America because it's got a Batman building, it's got an R2-D2 building, and uh, it's got the Grand Old Opry. Yeah. <laughs> Are you enjoying it yet? I do. I like it a lot. Um, I'll be joining yeah, Gabe Lyons and the Q team. And uh, yeah, I, I love the, the influence that it's definitely got a Christ-centeredness here, but it also has a lot of influence in the culture of our nation. Yeah, man. That's awesome. You know, the, uh, the Grand Old Opry, by the way, was started as a ministry to all the gamblers down on the river. So that's a cool little wow. bit of history. But uh Dr. Melinda Joy Mingo is our guest. I like to brag about her in my author interviews. It was uh, no, no shade on other authors out there, but it was my favorite interview. It was so amazing to me. I raved to everybody. You have to know Melinda Joy Mingo. That, that she's got a new book coming out. And Dr. Mingo, let me introduce you. And then uh, we'll get started here. We'll go straight into it. And at the end, I want you just to tell everybody where they can get your new book. But Dr. Mingo is an ordained minister, professor, cultural capacity expert, and entrepreneur based in Colorado Springs. She holds a PhD in global leadership and also founded Janai Ministry, International Ministry and Significant Life Change Incorporated. And she has lived in multiple parts of the world. She probably tell you a little bit about that and has quite a story. So it's an honor on behalf of Exponential. Let me thank you for joining us today. And we're excited for you to jump in and help us with this topic of reconciliation. So welcome to Candid Conversations. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. I have to let you know you're my best interviewer to date. I just want to let you know that too. Hey, I'll I'm, take it. Okay. <laughs> but you haven't met Grant yet. Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> no, there's a, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not even a middleman. I'm just a, I'm the third wheel on this. You guys have. Oh, you're amazing but, already. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to getting to know you more. But uh, kind of as, as Peyton already mentioned, uh, that you have a super interesting story, even looking a little bit into your bio, 
uh, would you mind kind of sharing as the topic is reconciliation today, would you kind of mind sharing a little bit of your story and how uh, just reconciliation became such a high priority to you in your life? Sure. So my story of reconciliation, and as I see reconciliation, I just want to say, I see reconciliation as an intentional realignment and recalibration of human dignity and worth. That's how I see it. Because again, sometimes people are like, I don't know what I'm reconciling. What are you talking about, Dr. MJ? And so for me, I was telling Peyton in my initial time with him, I grew up in inner city Chicago, and I grew up in a a housing project called Cabrini Green. Um, We are famous for good times, for the movie Good Times. But uh, we were also, see, but we were also infamous because people judged and stereotyped us uh, growing up in one of the worst projects ever. I mean, gangland territory, all of that. And so I was a staunch racist. You know, I, I don't say that proudly. I'm only smiling because of God's redemption. But I disliked white people. I'm sorry to say that. And, and, and the reason I, I, I share that is because I like to talk about the redemptive power of Jesus. And, and part of my being, um, if I can say, a racist during that time growing up was because my father was killed by a white man um, immediately after I was born. My mom, I was only five weeks old and my father was killed um, right after I was born. And so the trauma of that, and my mom was so traumatized. I mean, I won't go into the brutal way my father was killed, but I will say she was so traumatized that she literally gave me away to a couple. She said, I can't even keep her. I'm so traumatized by this. And so with that, all these things entered my heart. You know, I just saw white people as the enemy. I was like, I only want to wear white gym shoes. I just, that's just the way I feel. I, I'm never, I even prayed. It's in my book. And I was not a believer um, growing up in inner city Chicago. I literally was like a terror. I mean, I was trying to be a gang wannabe. I was terrorizing people, going into stores with my friends and harassing whites. You know, it's not the best story at the beginning. There's an ending that's good. But in the midst of that, you know, the Lord really got my attention and, and began to say to me, um, there's something really wrong here uh, because, yes, your father was, was killed, but uh, there's something in your heart that you need to think about. And so I'll just say part of that story is a realization of I got on my knees and I dropped down and prayed. I was like a baby <laughs> when Martin Luther King was killed. And I still mm-hmm. remember that, you guys. I remember to date that I was terrified and I literally dropped on my knees and I was like, I want to be a white woman. Is it. And I was like, God, if you make me white, I won't tell anybody. This will be between me and you. (laughs) Nobody will Mm. ever know. But I literally prayed for months. And when I tell this story, people are like, MJ, it's so sad. I go, but it's just the truth. We have to be truthful as believers. And the reason why I prayed that, I was like, I'm not going to make it. My father's killed. Martin Luther King's killed. I'm going to be next. My friends are dying in front of me. People have, are calling me a loser, you know, and all that. So, so, so the redemptive piece of that, you know, I'll talk about a little bit. But I do want to say that because I certainly believe that as believers who are redeemed by the blood of the cross and the lamb, that we have stories. And those mm. stories we don't want to share because we don't want people to judge us. And so they see the end part of something. Oh, my God, she's Dr. MJ. She's talking about reconciliation. Yes, I am. But I had to come to grips that 
the white person was not my enemy. My greatest enemy was I did not see myself as a woman of value and worth and dignity. Mm. I mean, I literally, uh, Grant, you know, I'm hating, I literally dyed my hair blonde. I mean, it's just a story. You know, I dyed my hair blonde and I was like, I'm wearing wow. green contacts and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be white. I'm just gonna be white. And so what's wrong with that? Well, what was wrong with that is again, I had no value or worth for myself. So how can I value someone else? So that's kind of the initial part of my story of um, that place that I don't like to talk about a lot, but I do talk about it only because until we, we are willing to really acknowledge the fact that we do have some things in our lives, even as believers, that, that kind of transfer on from things that have happened, and we have to give those to Jesus because they're mm. not, they just fester and they pop up, you know, at the most unusual time. Yeah. Mm. If I can well. ask a quick follow up on that, um, how do you feel like that impacted just relationships, uh, whether it's dating, whether it's friendships, uh, church, um, just this idea of, I mean, it, it sounds like a real tension of, I want to be this, but then sometimes uh, it sounds like also, I really can't stand this. Um, mm -hmm. how, do, yeah, how did that impact just your relationships? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly that. It's, it's the whole misnomer of an identity, you know, a thwarted kind of identity to begin with, not seeing myself through the image of the lens of how God has created me. And so, yeah, my relationships were, okay, yeah, I want to date white people, men, you know, I want to do that, but then I don't like you too. I don't like you either. I want to date you, but I don't like you. Or maybe I don't like you. I do. So it's so crazy. You know what I mean? It's all the stuff of coming to grips with, with how our environments and how we've lived, how it so impacts, you know, and impacts until we give it to Jesus. It impacts yeah. how we relate to people. Even, even yeah. if, you know, we, we're grown people still talking about something that happened when we were 10. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's powerful. And, you know, I, I love the fact that you're so real about where you've been. And I think everyone could, could really take a page out of your book to imitate that because when I read the New Testament, I see Paul who, you know, had to be really real to, to, to preach the power and the grace of God. He had to tell his story, yes. you know, and three times in Acts, we have that story unpacked three times yes. his stories told yes. and it, like from, from beginning to end, you know, in his testimonies in the actual account, and, and what a testimony. I think that, that until we can tell our stories mm -hmm. where we're not the hero and Christ is the hero in that. And that's what I love about your story about reconciliation is you started off saying, I was a racist. I think everybody who can't start off acknowledging their own junk is never going to change and never going to heal. But one of the things that fascinated me about you was you went and lived. And I mean, uh, this is what I say. Melinda Joy Mingo has lived multiple lifetimes, you know, that most people aren't going to live. You lived in Vietnam. Yes. And when you told me that in, in the subject on reconciliation, I mean, what hit me was you're an American living in Vietnam in a country where we were at war with them. The most they know about Americans is that we went there and threw a bunch of napalm on them. You know, I mean, that, uh, what, how did that shape your views and what part of your journey was that? Uh, how did God use that experience to, to teach you about reconciliation? 
Yes, I mean, the most amazing thing happened to me, Peyton. Um, I'm a professor, um, as you introduced, and I was invited in 2005 by someone who said, hey, MJ, you know, that, well, you know, after I've been redeemed and all that junk and stuff had gone, they were like, you know, here's an opportunity for you to go to Vietnam to teach as a professor and be a part of, you know, kind of the underground church in Vietnam, and we would pay for you to go over. Um, we never had an African-American woman uh, in Vietnam at Hanoi University, and so it would be so great for them to hear your story. And so what impacted me when I got off the plane in Vietnam at midnight, it was midnight, and there were shopping carts of flowers uh, behind the gate, just, just lined up. And I was like, man, some celebrity is getting off this plane here. They've got all those flowers and stuff. And so when I got off the plane, they have big signs. You are welcome here, Melinda Joy. They waited at the gate and they said, you are welcome here. And so I leaned into the stories of the Vietnamese people. When I first got there, you know, it's like, oh, you're a rock star, MJ, you're a professor. And hey, you wanna go to the American places and eat hamburgers? So like, no, no, I wanna <laughs> become an insider. So becoming an insider means I need to live with you. I need to breathe with you. I need to experience your joy. I need to experience your pain. And what I came to realize, Peyton, was we really are more alike than we are different. And so my, my stories of growing up in extreme poverty in Chicago and rats running across the table um, in Vietnam, you know, I would sit with my friends. And how did I make friends in Vietnam? Well, I became a friend. I totally, you know, I didn't posture myself above the culture. I didn't see myself as uh, an American coming in here trying to save the day. Uh, again, you know, I, I sat on motorbikes. My friends saw me having panic attacks while I was in Vietnam, going into places where I was like, I can't do it, you guys. You know, I rode on the back of scooters for hours. I, I leaned into being a friend. And what I realized is human worth and dignity. I talk about it a lot, is that the Lord spoke to me and said, everybody, I don't care what part of the continent they're on, that I, everybody has human worth and dignity. And Melinda Joy, the way that you're going to connect in Vietnam, beyond just being a professor and, and really becoming a friend, is allowing yourself to be uncomfortable, allowing yourself to take a risk. And it was uncomfortable times when I walked the streets of Hanoi and, and people would just stop and stare at me. And I was like, oh my gosh, Something's going to happen. I mean, they would stare, literally stop in the streets. And my friends would say, MJ, they've not seen a black woman before. And yeah. so you get a chance to bring something new. And it was so funny because sometimes they would say, are you Oprah Winfrey? And I was like, no. Are you <laughs> Goldberg? No, I'm not Whoopi. Are you Beyonce's uh, sister? I go, well, <laughs> we might have a little sim. So it was so cool. I just learned, here's what I learned is we make it so difficult to relate to people when all we have to do is suspend all of our assumptions about people, let go of stereotypes, and be willing to take a risk to come out of everything that we know, everything that we know about a group of people and become an insider through love, love, through the love of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. When you uh, focus on reconciliation, I feel like, um, there's been a new like approach I've seen towards the word reconciliation. I've heard more and more leaders say this, and I'd love your thoughts of 
I've heard more leaders say, you know, we need to stop using the word reconciliation or racial reconciliation because there has n- never been like a healthy relationship between at least white Americans and what are now African Americans. It's kind of been the foundation of the relationship started poorly. It's like, it's not that we shouldn't uh, create healing and forgiveness. And uh, it's more of a, we need to just build a relationship because uh, it was never broken. It started broken. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I agree. I certainly agree. That's why, again, the term reconciliation is very ambiguous to some people because they, they're saying, what are we reconciling? You know, again, I have people who will say, Grant, you know, MJ, I'm confused. I had nothing to do with 50 years ago. I have friends from all backgrounds. And so one of the terms that I use, Grant and Peyton, I use racial righteousness. And okay. I, use that, I use that term a lot. And I, and I take it from Amos 5 and 24 that um, let justice and righteousness roll down because sometimes we stop right at justice. And yes, there needs to be social justice. There's a lot of things that have not been done well in, in America. It's just the truth. And so there's still things that are broken. But if we as believers, if we lead the way with righteousness, we can't just lead the way with another term, another opinion, another thought. You know, we sit in another group, another training session. But I'm thinking of this. Who was Jesus with? He was with everybody that nobody else wanted to be with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was. He was with everybody that nobody else wanted to be with. So what is racial racial righteousness? It's it's looking at the fact that the news of the gospel and the great news of the gospel should be joy to all of us when we think of justice and equity and all of these things. And that if we pursue righteousness, then we're going to treat people and see people the way that Jesus wants us to. Yeah. Yeah. If I can ask real quick, uh, I don't, you, you kind of shared a couple little moments, but like, if you think back of, man, this was like a, do you have a breakthrough story? Like, I, I, it sounds like you had a whole bunch of moments you just mentioned, but like a breakthrough story. What, one thing I like about how you talk about reconciliation is sometimes we make it like, oh, this is a tough conversation. And there is some tough uh, topics that have to be addressed with rec- racial reconciliation. But I was like, sometimes I don't think we give ourselves enough credit of there's so much beauty and benefits. Yeah. And it's like, it's just so much more awesome when there is unity, diversity and, and every, everything I, I'm about to get married next month. And I, I always joke that um, when I go to white weddings, it's pretty predictable. It's very, uh, it's very uh, Pinteresty. It's like a lot of wood, a lot of twine. And when I go to uh, black weddings, uh, but I always say like the music though is always the same. It's like, I say white people like dancing to music that give instructions. And so it's like to the left, to the left, to the right, to the right. And, and my point is like, if I'm, I'm half Mexican and actually my dad's South African, so it's a very unique mix. But when I go to a Mexican wedding, it's one way. When I go to a black wedding, it's one way. But my favorite weddings these days are like biracial couples. Mm As you see these two, maybe three different cultures trying to come together on a very sacred, important day. It is beautiful. It's awesome. It's like, oh, okay, this is like, I've never experienced something like this before. And so uh, one of my questions for you is just like, when was that moment? Uh, was there, is there a story when uh, you just had that, like, wow, there, I, this, like what you call racism or this prejudice has been holding me back. Like, what was that breakthrough of seeing maybe a beautiful story of, man, I've been missing out. Yeah. So one story I'm thinking about is um, I started college when I was 15 years old 
in the midst of all my stuff of trying to be tough and everything. And I got a full ride scholarship in Chicago and I had to leave inner city Chicago to go to a university called Loyola University, which is kind of more in the suburbs of Chicago. And so I would take my backpack, yeah, take my backpack and stuff, get on the bus and go to this all white school. And I was loved on so much. I have to say this because I would go there and literally had no food for the day. I had my little backpack, you know, and I was excited about college and everything. And people loved on me, Grant. I'm telling you, they loved on me. They encouraged me. And none of them looked like me. All of them had a heart to see me uh, value myself and do something different with my life. And that was the breakthrough. It was like, Melinda Joy, you got to get over this mess. You know, it's like, look who's loving on you. And, and so the moment for me was thinking that I have allowed myself to separ- be separated from people by external factors, such as race, how they look, you know, their, their socioeconomic status. Oh, these people who are wealthy, they don't like poor people, just the whole thing. But that was a breakthrough moment for me. I was literally, I was mentored by an older white female who came into my life, and I tell you, she broke down all that stuff. She was pow, pow, pow. She, she broke it down with love, and she so loved on me, and that broke through for me. That was a breakthrough. That's amazing, and I, I want to have you un- unpack that a little bit because we hear so much about social justice, and our guest last week was Dahadi Lewis, who he made a profound statement that um, perfect justice – the only place that perfect justice exists is in hell. And he said, God's heart is reconciliation. So as we look at that, um, I guess one of the questions I have for you, because I know in your book, The Color of Culture, your book that just dropped uh, this past month, um, you talk a, a lot about this. And uh, I guess what I want to know is, is how you just mentioned that the woman loved you, you know, your mentor loved you. How do you see reconciliation happening? And how is that something our culture maybe hungers for without knowing? And yet, how is it also very countercultural at the same time? Yeah, it is countercultural. And I think for me, when I, that's a great question. Reconciliation has to be countercultural for a believer. And what I mean is that there are things that we do. Um, believe in and adopt, you know, when we see things that are inequitable or whatever, those things are real. And and we realize Mm -hmm. that. But I do think, again, going back to the biblical model of reconciliation and the reality is when I think of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, that it suspended everything, gender, Mm -hmm. race, lifestyle, but he intentionally met her. He met her where she was. And for believers, I just think, again, how do we go back to the biblical model that justice is not a byproduct, reconciliation, you know, it's not something that we do on the side where, you know, again, the scripture says that the the whole wall of biting wall of hostility has been broken down. And I think, too, Peyton, if we if if I could say if we see begin to see people, you know, in a different way, not just seeing people. Um, by what they accomplished, not accomplished, or anything like that. But I still go back to the piece of humanity. And that if we begin to look at the human worth and dignity of people, then reconciliation is not reconciliation 
reconciling a system with this area, this town. It is reconciling the fact of the human worth and dignity of all people and that the behavior should not mar us from seeing human worth in people because sometimes we just camp on the behavior that someone does and we don't like them immediately because their behavior goes totally against our values and beliefs. But I just think, again, as we lead, and we lead with love, love is not a, um, it's not a weak word. I believe love is the word that we lead, we lead with love, we lead with truth, and we connect with people heart to heart. And when we connect heart to heart, then God can do something. And you use a word um, in your book, and I, I love this word, Ubuntu. Tell, tell us, a little, did I say it right? Oh, yes, close. You won't do. Yes. Okay, okay. Tell, un, unpack that for us. What is it and where did you get it and, and what difference does it make? Yes, so the term Ubuntu is a South African term, um, Archbishop Tutu. Yeah, he uh, coined that phrase. And the phrase is, I am because we are. And the whole theme of that is community. What is a compassionate community? What is empathy for other people? That, I, that if I lean into your pain and you lean into my pain, we lean together, then we can bring healing together. And that Ubuntu says, how can one person be happy? Even as believers, as uh, white believers may see injustices with people of different races or ethnicities, then they lean into that pain or, or African-Americans or whatever it might be. So Ubuntu says community happens when we allow empathy and compassion to be our wayward, our mark of how we see each other. And empathy is, I may never understand someone's lived experiences when they say, I have pain over this here or whatever, but Ubuntu says, let me come into your life. Let me become a listener, not a storyteller with you, not bringing my opinions or any of that, but help me to understand how together that we learn to do life. And doing life together, kind of the model of Ubuntu, it's just saying, it's really to me the model of Jesus. It's the incarnational model of Jesus. And I, you know, I was thinking about this, Peyton. How many times do we see Jesus reclining at tables? You know, just, just hey, come down from out the tree and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have dinner with you, you know? Just relational, yeah, hey Lazarus, okay, get up, let's go have dinner. You know, stuff is waiting. And so that Ubuntu model is the relational model of how we should not be afraid of each other. That we, especially as believers in the church, when we think about multiculturalism and multi-ethnic churches, there should be no way that we would be afraid of each other when we really are in community with each other. Yeah. Uh, as we kind of talk about building relationships and, and uh, reclining at tables, are there are there any like uh, what are like practical steps to reconciliation or racial righteousness? Are there any landmines? Anything that's culturally appropriate? Any just any practical tips to uh, pursue and avoid uh, when trying to build those relationships? So, as far as avoidance, I just believe that we should all humble ourselves, allow ourselves to walk in humility with people, and to ask the Lord to show us. Am I doing something that is, it may be unconsciously, I'm doing something unconsciously, but I'm dishonoring. I'm dishonoring this person. I'm dishonoring this culture. And you know how we use the word um, 
random acts of kindness, the term random acts of kindness, I love that, but I take that a little further. What about symbolic acts of kindness? Symbolic acts of kindness means that, okay, I've met Peyton here, so rather than giving Peyton what I think he would like because I like it, why don't I actually take the time to move a little closer into Peyton's wall and to understand him. And so the landmines, again, is just that, you know, again, we allow arrogance, to be honest. We allow arrogance to, to totally just kind of override the humanity part that we'll look at people and um, we'll have these assumed familiarities. So what is assumed familiarity? We have an assumption that we see um, a certain group of people on TV, that everybody from that culture is doing the same thing, or everybody believes the same way. Or I had a black friend, you know, when I was in fifth grade, and I used this a lot. Well, that's wonderful, but you're 55 now, so who are you intentionally? <laughs> who are you intentionally connecting with now? And maybe you are, but who are you intentionally? Where are you intentionally stepping out of your world to enter into somebody else's world? I mean, so that, that I just think the landmine of arrogance and not not walking in humility. I mean, I always try to embrace being a heart of a learner. And and that's important to me because I go in and out of a lot of cultures. And I realize that no matter how much I talk about um, culture, diversity or reconciliation, it all boils down to one thing the value, worth, and dignity of all people. And so when I enter a world, I don't enter in with an assumption. I don't. Um, I've spent a lot of time on Navajo Reservation in Chinle, Arizona. And even though my mom, her heritage um, is Native American, and so I know how to make fry bread. I can do all of that. You know, I've been to powwows, but um, I also eat black eyed peas and cornbread. Mm -hmm. I can make mm -hmm. banana pudding, all of that. And I've learned that the beauty of intertwining who God has made me to be, um, it should not be something that, you know, I would despise, you know, and I'll say this here, that the other thing is people will say, well, I'm color, you know, I'm colorblind, MJ. I don't see color. I'm like, you don't have to be colorblind. You don't. Yeah. Because God created us to embrace each other. And don't fear uh, someone that's different. What we should fear is when we don't intentionally love them the way the Lord wants us to. Yeah. yeah. So, good. Wanna... you know, my, my wife is uh, half Palestinian and, you know, it's really interesting because in our culture, you know, there's such a shame, um, you know, associated with being Arabic. And yet that's only from an outside, like for, for white people, we, we place this shame on Arabic peoples, like you are the criminals of the world. But if you talk to an Arab, they are proud of being Arab. I mean, my my mm. wife's family, they that is their yes. they love being Arabic and that that whole sense of God has made me to be this. I've mm. never seen them do anything but embrace their culture. I think it's beautiful when every culture thinks their own culture is the bee's knees. And you gotta see God in it. Because he's not gonna <laughs> stop that in heaven. Oh, every tongue, great. tribe, and nation, we're gonna enrich heaven. And and that Acts 19 passage where Paul goes, God made these cultures. He literally right. comes out and says, God made them, which right. is just rock and roll. So, yeah, rock and roll, right? I like you that. You get me excited. That's yeah, Ubuntu right there. That's do Ubuntu. Thing. Do it. Just do that thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm claiming. I'm claiming that. You know? Yeah. I am because we are. So, yeah. um, 
Can I say this too? Just think about you and I, Peyton. We we've met one time virtually here, and I and I so connect heart to heart with you. You've been so honoring, so respectful. I mean, and so I mean, how difficult is that as believers to step into the life of someone else the same way that Jesus would, and let our lives mirror that? I'm just saying. You got me stirred uh-huh. up. Yeah, well, same thing. You get me excited. So here's the thing. As as those of you that are out there, I know you're listening and you're going, man, I want to ask questions. These are awesome. Um, I mean, we have with Dr. Mingo, I mean, she's a scholar. She's a traveler. She's had experiences with this culture. She's got a story of transformation. She's written a book. I mean, all these things, um, you know, we have an opportunity to really pick her brain. So if you want to drop your questions into uh, the chat column on the side of where you're watching this, go ahead and drop it in. That'll feed straight into us and we will ask them. We actually have our first question from the audience, which is in your book. So someone out there is a fan of your book. In your book, The Colors of Culture, your first chapter is History Matters. So why did you choose to start your book with that emphasis? Yeah, I love that question. So I started with that because, again, I heard a statement that if we do not understand history, we are doomed to repeat it. If we don't understand the things that have not gone well in history, we are doomed to repeat those same things. And so, so when we look at people, and I look, you know, say myself as an African-American woman, that uh, people have said to me, MJ, you know, I had someone recently say, you know, I don't quite understand, you know, why can't I use the N-word? This is a white male. You know, you guys use it in your own culture. I said, well, this is a good learning moment and a good teaching moment. I said, because... Um, In our culture, not everybody uses the N-word, number one, that's to say that. And then secondly, that is, you know, you can't, you are an outsider with that word. It's very derogatory coming from a white male to to call someone the N-word. I said, so I'm glad you asked, but you need to also think, what if I took a word that was very derogatory that you and your family you all round the table, you talk about, and I just bust in your door and start using that word. And he said, yeah, I didn't think about it. So I said, here's the thing about history. There are things in history that we don't want to look at as believers, but they happened. They happened. Things happened in history. So again, it, it matters because once we see what has happened, we don't want to repeat those things. We, we don't want to repeat the same atrocities. And whether or not we were in, in the world 60 years ago or not, what is it presently that the Lord is asking us to be um, an ally and an advocate for in the area of racial righteousness and justice? And by the way, if I could say this, even with my book, um, I wrote that book while I was homeless. And most people don't know that. I traveled around the world when I initially started that book, but I was sleeping in my car in a parking lot of a Walmart when I finished those last four chapters um, and I lost everything. I had a traumatic thing happen to me. I would get up, try to wash up and try to finish that book, the last four chapters while I was homeless. And the reason why I say that is because again, the message to me in that book is so important about history matters, but also that we have lived experiences that intersect with each other. And that if we lean into those, we'll understand that it doesn't matter whether you're white, black, whatever, Asian, pain is an equal opportunity destroyer. 
And when we realize that pain and all that, that there's people who are sleeping in their cars right beside me who didn't look like me, but we learned how to do life together. Yeah. Yeah. want to keep encouraging uh, people to uh, put in questions in the chat. Uh, but one question I even had for you on the book, uh, Melinda Joy was, uh, you know, I heard John Piper once say that books don't change people's lives. Paragraphs do. And so when I found that, I, I just congratulations to writing a book. It's, it is so hard. It's so much work. It's not just the writing of the book. It's the, it's the agent, it's the publishing, it's the marketing, it's the getting out there. It's the now speaking and podcasting. It is a two to three year commitment to, yeah. to just write. It's not just writing a book. And so mm -hmm. uh, one of the beauty and like, you know, and I'm sure it's been what you said, one month, or is it a little bit more than that? It was it three months or one. Month? Oh, yeah. So my book birthday was September 15th. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. So, uh, as you already know, everybody will ask, um, Hey, how's the book going? How's the book going? And sometimes mm -hmm. you feel like, do I need to say how many have been sold or, or is the better metric, the stories that come out of it? And so one of the things I'm curious is like, what paragraphs do you feel like have changed people's life? You just, you have people come up to you over and over again. You're like, man, people mm -hmm. keep connecting with this little section of the book. Uh, what section is that? And why do you, why do you think that is? Oh, what paragraphs? Well, let's see. Well, just I'm section, like, section. You don't have oh, to say like okay. you know, page twenty-two. Hey, no, this no, pressure. no pressure, no pressure at all. You're like, like you know, I, just, <laughs> I keep finding, I keep finding them connecting with this section of the book, this part, like that, where I share about this or talk about this. Yeah. Well, honestly, it's. Um, I would think I would say that a lot of people are really saying to me that the entire book is not just one paragraph. I would just say that people are saying to me, you know, even recently, I had a lady yesterday, she said, Melinda Joy, um, you are the message of your book. And yeah. I love that you've written this here. You wrote this book and you were very vulnerable and transparent and, and people are saying not necessarily one block of the book, uh, Grant, but they're saying the themes of vulnerability and being transparent, that that's what has really stood out to them. They said, you tell the real stories. And I'm like, I had to. I had to tell the stories of when I didn't get it right and how God still had grace and forgiveness for me. And, and I wanted to tell the good stories because I have friends from all over the world and I wanted those stories to be, to be told as well. So I just think the stories of being real of how God has redeemed my life and how he's allowed me now to be a conduit of that same love to other people. And even, you know, at, in, with a book, again, someone said, you know, you live your message before you write it. You yeah. live the message in your book before you write it. And this was a painful book to write because I had to really disclose some really hard stuff that I didn't necessarily want to. And I thought, well, it's not going to be a real book if I can't share the true stories of how I didn't like Korean women, you know, talking in their native tongue or language in a sauna, how immediately I just kind of stereotyped them and how God turned that thing around. So I just, I just believe, Grant, the things that people are saying, I don't have a specific paragraph, but people are saying that the themes of vulnerability, transparency, of practical steps of what to do next, of keeping yeah. it in a biblical context as well, um, the real stories of what's going on, but still always pushing it back to a biblical context. Yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Mingo, I think that's one of the most uh, powerful things about you. And this is why I got excited when I interviewed you, because I, I've interviewed hundreds of people 
over the last seven, eight years. That's just what I do, right? <laughs> Multiple podcasts, you know. Um, the, the, the authors that write about like reaching your neighbor, the amount of times I'd say, well, tell us a story about your neighbors right now. And they'd be like, uh, you know, and, and, or, or they write a discipleship. And they're like, oh, tell me what you're doing right now. Nothing. And, and, and so I think, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, who is it, uh, Hemingway? that he said, he was a journalist, he said, I don't write about it if I haven't been there uh-huh. on the ground, investigative journalism. And, and so he writes about bullfighting because he was a bullfighter. He writes the old man in the sea because he was a big fisherman. You know, he writes yeah. about a crash on the mountainside of Kilimanjaro in an airplane because he crashed an airplane on the side of Kilimanjaro. Yes. That's what he wrote about. And I think that, that the Apostle Paul was the same. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Wesley Paul, they, I, what you said to me is one of the most powerful things I've heard in a long time, that I have embodied the message yeah. of what I'm writing about. Like that mm-hmm. to me is huge. Um, and one of the questions, I think somebody in that, I'm not sure quite how to phrase their question, um, but they're, they're fascinated that you've been a professor and you've been homeless you know, mm-hmm. I mean, more people have been homeless than, uh-huh. than what I think people, I was raised by a single mom. I remember living, you know, uh, and I, I slept in a car a few nights. I remember that in some transitions, but can you kind of mm-hmm. talk about how God used both of those and what you learned, uh, both in your time of homelessness and what you learned being a professor? Cause I know God had stuff to teach you in both. Right. Oh, right. And, and in the context of reconciliation, right, yeah. that's becoming all things to all men right there, right? Um, how yeah. did God use that to connect with people in a new way, to, to be that reconciler, to embody reconciliation through those experiences? Yeah, thank you so much. So my homelessness, my, my husband and I moved to Colorado Springs, and my husband died a, from another city, and he died a few months um, after we got into the city. And so it, he died, I mean, literally died a couple of months. And I was left by myself, lost everything, went down to ground zero. We were starting over from scratch. I knew no one in the city. And so, you know, you go through all of that stuff. And, um, and so the journey of it, the pain of it, the loss of it, but the people that came immediately and, and interacted with me pain, in love was a Vietnamese couple in Colorado Springs. God was getting me set up to go to Vietnam to love. They interacted with me. I was standing, this is a true story. I was standing on the streets of Colorado Springs with my house shoes on and I was weeping. I was like, God, I've lost everything. I, like, my husband just died in my arms in a pool of blood. There, I won't go into the story of it, the tragedy of that. And I have nothing here. I have no money. I'm going to be sleeping somewhere in my car. They literally took me into their home, did reconciliation, took me into their home. Again, couldn't speak English, you know, fixed me food, sat and looked at me the entire time. They began to teach me Vietnamese, how to speak the Vietnamese language. Um, I, they began to bring healing to my life. And so what's the reconciliation of that is, again, how people connect just as human beings. We connect as human beings. That humanity part is what I'm so passionate about, is that this couple didn't know me. And so, yeah, there was that part. And, and so at some point, I got up back on my feet, and, and I'm a professor, yes. So, so what that did for me, um, Peyton, oh, my gosh, it just it, it birthed in my heart a compassion and an empathy for people from all walks, walks of life because you don't know. You never know when you see a people. You don't know what their stories are. And so our stories can intersect when we allow God 
to 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 let us to lean you know put us into other stories so as a professor every class that i teach i teach law i'm a law professor i teach anti-discrimination law i'm a communications professor it goes on down but every class i pray before my students come in because i know that there are going to be students in my classrooms who are going through such horrific things. And so I'm not looking at my students that I'm only gonna minister or love on the black students or African-Americans. I'm going to love on the people who come into my classroom. I mean, I've had students who were homeless. I just had a guy recently tell me, you know, professor, you know, cause he was really dirty. And she said, you know, I'm homeless, sleeping in my car. So, so the interaction of reconciliation is with humanity. It's with the joys of humanity. It's with the pains of humanity humanity and it's the empathy and compassion compassion to suffer with and so yeah people will look at me and say well how are you homeless with a phd i said very easily because things happen to everybody and what i want to communicate always to people is that i'm never above anyone that i've gone through all of these things now because my pain has a mission attached to it and so I'm a pastor, I'm an I'm a outreach pastor with Gen.I. Ministry, and God used that, that situation of being homeless for over a year, living in a shelter, having people standing over you, sleeping in the car, sleeping on the bench when you don't have a car. And now my ministry is definitely targeted to the margin, those on the margins. And so I'm called the park pastor in Colorado Springs. I when I walk it. in the park, they go, here comes our pastor. <laughs> That's so good. I love it. I'm Grant. I'm looking at you, brother. I've I've asked yeah. a few here. I'm I want to I want to move out of your way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I, I want I don't know how to ask the question. That I, it's more of a statement than it is a question. One of the the things we got in here is that we've learned through healing prayer ministry classes that a large part of the healing which comes is through telling stories um, or telling our stories. I hope you would want to comment on that. Uh, but mm. yeah, maybe yeah. just how does, how does story help the reconciliation process? Yeah, you know, yeah, you know what it does? It brings us back again to the human aspect that I think about um, stories. So I, I think about uh, 911 and how, you know, the tragedy of 911 and how we recently commemorated that day and I and I say to people I can't I remember that day so well Grant and Peyton I remember I was at work yeah. when that happened and 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 here's my thought I can't think of anyone who was looking going okay do they have green eyes do they have blue eyes when they brought them down do they speak English are they Muslim you know are they have yeah. an alternative life nothing it was humanity connecting with empathy and compassion over what has just happened. And so the healing that happens in our stories is that we find out we are more alike than we are different. And that we are different because God has created us to be different and to be unique. But our stories bring us together. Our stories, a wealthy man and a homeless man can sit together and, and probably find out they have some things in common. Take the money, take the class out of it and talk about life, right? Just talk about life. Yeah. Um, um, and those are, that's how we connect. We connect over those things. I have a story. I um, Speaking of stories, that after George Floyd um, was murdered and, and, and died, I, I have to tell you, you know, I was beyond being traumatized with that. After I watched the funeral, I had to really recalibrate my heart about some things. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where, as a believer, I think we can be honest and say when things come and we look at it, that we don't default again back to the old thing of, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't like this or whatever. These people here, these whites, these whatever. My heart was going down the road again when I saw that. I cried for days, cried for days, days, days. And, and um, immediately after that, I went out and sat in the parking lot. There was an elderly white man. I was getting out of my car, walking across the lot, and I know the Lord sent him to me. He came over, and there were all these rocks, and I had on um, stilettos. And so he says, ma'am, would you allow me to help you across the rocks? Would you just allow me? I said, yes, I will. Graciously walk me across those rocks. And he said, I see you're crying in your car. I'm not going to ask you anything. I'm just going to say to you that you have value and worth. I remember that story so clear because my heart was going down, as, down the road. And sometimes as believers, we don't want to be honest that we don't like people. You know, we don't yeah. want to be honest. And, you know, I don't like them. You know, we're okay worshiping. I don't like their worship style. They're too loud. They're too quiet. You know, we give people a permanent visitor pass when they come to church. You're a permanent visitor. You'll never become one of us. And so those are the things where the Lord is like, I'm more interested in you seeing yourself first than I am you trying to change someone else. I'm so glad you said that because I have this theory that the Apostle Paul actually didn't like people. Because when you get really zealous for God and your mission is to go kill them, right? To go kill people, probably not a people person. I mean, I'm just kind of guessing, right? Maybe I'm out on a limb here. But to me, when he says, and I think it's very telling when he says, for the love of Christ compels us, Mm -hmm. I kind of think what he's saying is, listen, this is not my love. I'm borrowing this love for other people. Christ is filling my heart with love. And, you know, for me, on a, on an, it, that doesn't compute with ethnicity for me, like, wow. because I was raised, my mom was an ESL teacher. My first ministry was, was to Vietnamese, Vietnamese students. I don't know if I ever told you that in our last no. interview. But, yeah. but my, um, my uh, it was in Garden Grove, California. Um, they, they call it Little Saigon. And um, that was yes. my minute. But, but, but for me, it's just, I just don't like people, right? Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is, is if I go in a ministry context, I can love anybody all day. And it is a supernatural yeah. thing. And I think when we divorce uh-huh. um, our natural dislike, because we hide it, because we're ashamed of it. But I think it's a huge growth step for us to say, you know, Peyton Jones, naturally yeah. not a people person. Paul, not a people person, but he goes, but out of the Holy Spirit, instant people person, right? It's like just add water. And I think if we could kind of understand that it's not a shameful thing to say, Peyton Jones in the natural, I don't like people. I don't like any of you. I mean, I get on the freeway. I hate you all, right? But, But the Holy Spirit that when Paul says it were as if God were in us, and this is the verse, right? This is the money yes. verse right here. You know, as if God were using us through us, reconciling the world to himself, saying yes. be reconciled to God. That is supernatural in us. Mm-hmm. And I've got to oh think that. Gosh. 
I loved it so much. I love it. And if I can just, you know, say this here, I echo it with it in my heart because in our own strength, sometimes we can't love. Okay. Let's just be real. <laughs> I don't, I don't care how many songs we know okay, and how much we sing, how great thou art. Okay. Let's just be honest. <laughs> it's true. And you know, what, what, what happened is that God begins to, Jesus begins to show us kind of the root of us in our heart when we intersect with something that's now going to follow that root. And so the Holy Spirit allows us to see people the way Jesus wants us to see people. He does. Mm. I mean, we don't see, because we look at people and go, that, whatever, you know. I mean, you think about it, Peyton. I love that so much. That You, you know, we're driving in the car, someone gives you a finger or says something bad to you, you know, as they do that we can default if they're of another race, we'll default. That person did that because I was this. And, and then you go wow. down the road, yeah. you see that that person did it to 12 other people because mm. of the generation of that. And if I could say something really quickly here, I was thinking about the book of Philemon and that powerful book of Philemon, a house pastor, loving Jesus in a cultural context that it was okay to have slaves, he, you know, uh, ignorance is curable, arrogance may take a lot longer. So he was a bit ignorant, you know, but then here's Onesimus and his name meant useful. And because his identity and what he was doing did not match his name, he was called useless. And I love it because the apostle Paul told Philemon, you're doing a good work, bud, but listen, you've got a slave there cleaning your shoes, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, he ran away, you know, he, and I'm going to ask you to receive Onesimus back as an equal, not as a slave, but as somebody who can sit at the table with you. Yeah. And only Jesus can do that. Yeah. Through our hearts. We uh, have one of our last questions come in, and it's uh, one of the questions asked, hey, as a new author, um, who are other authors that have really influenced your thinking on all this? And uh, I think that's one question. And then the second one was, in what books would you recommend and resources would you recommend as others are taking on this journey? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, try to think about that really quickly here coming in. Um, I do like Brenda Salter McNeil. I, yeah. I love her. Yeah, I like her writings because, you know, they're courageous writings. They're about reconciliation and justice but they always end up pointing people back to the biblical root of what righteousness is. Uh, Dr. John Perkins, I would recommend, love his books. I mean, I just love his heart. Um, he, he has several books, but one in particular is called One Blood. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book that, you know, centers us, brings truth. Yeah. But, but centers us. Um, and um, InterVarsity Press, even though, you know, there's a genre, a lot of books, I do want to say this, not just because I'm an author with IV, but I do love our IV, IV InterVarsity Press, because they have, they have a whole catch, uh, cachet of books by authors of color. That yeah, are they really, do. Yeah, they do, right? And they're really yeah. great. And so I want to say that um, this book might, you know, surprise people, but I do like the, the, the writings of Henry Nowen. I know he's not writing about racial righteousness and all that, but he writes yeah, about humanity. Yeah, yeah, he writes about love and humanity and, you know, those things. Um, I do, if people are interested in, you know, history matters, I do love The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, which mm -hmm. is a great book 
that actually gives people more of a historical context of some of these things. Um, and I think, what's your book, Grant? <laughs> my book's not about, but my book's called The Passion Generation, yeah, with okay. Zondervan. But I, I, I want to get a comment on that. I do love IVP. I hate those millennials, said. dang it. Your book helped me. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, I love, I love how you mentioned IVP. They, I, I respect them a lot for just being, I, they've asked me several times, just they're always looking for, uh, people of color, new voices, uh-huh. young voices. Um, I, I really yeah. appreciate, uh, that. And I think, yeah, I think IVP's put out a lot of great stuff, including if, that. If I so. could add to that, literally I was tasked with finding for the resource kit, for those of you that, that register for the round tables, the resource kit, we have 30 authors, which is how I met Dr. Mingo um, was, she was one of the authors. I asked IVP, but literally I went to every single publisher and it is overwhelming how many resources IVP has had for years on this. They're not just jumping on a bandwagon. They were ahead of the curve on this. Yeah, they were. Um, so yeah. it, it, big, big props to them. Yeah. And what I love is they have a statement, uh, amplifying voices of color. And, and it's not just black voices, it's Asian, it's Indian, whatever. And I love that. So it is such a great place for resources. And, and as Peyton said, I mean, it's not just now they're just, uh, here's a bunch of books. I mean, they've been well ahead of the curve for years. So, yeah. It's good. You know, Dr. Mingo, one of the, the questions I like to ask in closing is for people that are, are kind of wading into these waters and saying, look, I see this as a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe they've, they've heard what you've said, which, you know, the color of culture, the beauty of diverse friendships, I mean, that's something I could do, right? I could start befriending people that are different than me, seeing how the image of God is in them. Like that, that's beautiful. Just starting by seeing people the way Jesus saw people or seeing people the way God sees them. Um, could you just give us maybe a couple of other very practical steps? I mean, on one hand, I want to say, go back in time, live Dr. Melinda Joy Mingo's life. It's not been an easy life, but you will get this perspective. But, yeah. but aside from that, being them, starting where they're at, many people feeling late to the game, feeling like many issues, part of white privilege is, oh, I've mm-hmm. just woken up to this. I didn't see these things. And there's mm-hmm. shame in that. You, yeah. you were very honest to say, hey, we have to be real. We have to talk, which so appreciate, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's leadership modeled right there for everyone. Yeah. Um, where can they start? What, what are some things that they can do? What are some next steps? Yeah, thank you. So um, I want to say first, I'm going to give an acronym, which is a step. And the acronym is TRUE, T-R-U-E. And this is a step here, TRUE, is that be, it's going to take time to build relationships with people but be intentional, go somewhere different, read a different book, go to another side of town, eat in a different restaurant, become the minority, if I may use that, become the person who's the outsider and see what it may feel like for others to be in a situation Mm -hmm. like that. Go visit a different church, you know, don't take 12 people with you, go by yourself, feel the discomfort of what it means to be in situations where you're the person now where people are kind of looking at. Take a risk wow. to be to befriend. There are intentional acts daily, whether it's at a convenience store, that person behind you, in front of you. See every person in front of you as a person that the Lord might allow you to bring something different, even if it's just a smile. That's number two. The third thing is, and this is not in order, I just believe Peyton not to discount 
prayer and to really pray and say, God, bring, it, bring to me and take mm. me, not only bring to me. I don't just want to have a come to. I want to have a go to. Take me into places. Allow me, allow situations to come where I now get a chance to learn and to lean into the stories of other people. Uh, the R is for respect and true. Think about what it means to just have pure respect for people. Might not like where they come from, might not, you might not like their behavior, but what does it mean to respect? The U is understanding, pursue understanding. Um, and I have this statement, a person's opinions, thoughts, disagreements never out trumps a person's lived experiences. It never does, no matter what. Hmm. And E is wow. empathy. Empathy is that become a listener, become, become not just an ally to say, I'm going to protest, um, become an ally with your neighbor next door in your neighborhood, become an ally with people that you may never want to go to because you've already made an assumption that they're like this, but lean into what's true. Takes time. Mm build respect, pursue mm. understanding, and have an empathetic heart, just like Jesus. Wow. So good. So good. Well, it has been an absolute joy to have you on today. Um, if you do want to pick up The Colors of Culture, it just dropped. It's a new book. You're going to be hearing a lot more from Dr. Mingo in future, and I can guarantee it. You know, we talked about John Perkins, Dr. John Perkins. He was our first guest in this series, and uh, he actually uh, endorse that book. He's right on the front cover. If I'm not mistaken, he wrote the foreword, didn't he? Yeah. Well, he, he wrote a wonderful endorsement. It's in front of the book. Yes. That, that right there says a lot. And I want to thank you on behalf of Exponential for coming on. I want to give a special thanks to uh, my co-host today because I'm actually the guest host. I'm not supposed to be here, but I want to thank Grant for putting up with me. And uh, we want to thank all of you out there for joining us. Before you sign off, be sure to check out our roundtables. Our roundtables are coming up to go deeper into these conversations. You can see we've got quite the lineup. There's a handsome devil there named Grant Skeldon in that mix. We've also got Ephraim Smith, who's also one of the co-hosts here. You can see these are our partners and friends at Exponential. And they're going to be speaking about this wide array of topics. And it is a wide array of topics. No two roundtables is actually alike. They're the they're like snowflakes. Uh, they're going to be that city's local context. We're bringing these conversations to your local context. We want this to be a flavor that fits where you're at. So the topics will change based on where you're at. The speakers will change based on where you're at. And your local leaders are going to determine what is the best fit. It is $29. I don't know if that deal's still going. If not, it's gone up slightly, but uh, I don't see the price on here. But all you have to do is go to that website, multiplication.org forward slash roundtables, and make sure that you go the next step and go deeper and start engaging because although these are great on here, you really want to take this in your local community and start having these conversations on a local level um, because we want to see transformation. And Brothers and sisters, it's no secret to say in the last 100 years, the church at its finest was under Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights. The entire world stood up and saluted that and said, that was amazing. That was the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is here 
to do. The gospel actually worked through society and transformed it. And what I would say to you is, this is a gospel issue. Make sure that the church doesn't miss the boat because the world is having this conversation, but the church should be leading the way. So I encourage you to be a part of that and participate at that level. Get involved personally. Make this your fight. Pick a fight with the devil because this is a satanic uh, idea that we should be divided when the kingdom of God says we should come together. Reconciliation is God's heart. I want to thank you again for joining us today, and we will see you next time on Candid Conversations. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.